0: Hello and welcome to From the Trenches, the Business Examiner Podcast. My name is John McDonald. This episode's guest is Kalen McNeil, founder of Big Wheel Burger and co-owner of Zambries in Victoria. From leading innovative food service organizations to playing professional poker, Kalen is a truly gifted business leader. Operating in one of the hardest hit industries in the pandemic, this serial restaurateur quickly adapted and even planned expansions amidst incredible challenges. We talk financial management, leadership principles, the overlap between his world series of poker lessons and running a business, and a whole lot more. Our conversation starts now.
1: Hello, I'm Kalen McNeil, president of Big Wheel Burger Inc., Uh, run Big Wheel Burger, also co-owner of Zambri's Restaurant, and I'm a partner in uh, oil service business up in Grand Prairie with my brother called Skyline, well Testing.
0: That is tremendous. That is a uh, an odd mix. It's not one that you hear every day, but very no. cool. <laughs> I'm wondering if you can uh, to, to start us off here. If you can walk me through your career a little bit. I did the the dive of what's available on on social media and online, but just kind of how you got into the restaurant game, um, and uh, and, even, and just how things evolved into your inv- involvement uh, in Alberta. There.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh kind of an interesting story. I think uh, my father was a entrepreneur up in Terrace, BC, where I grew up. He was in a logging business and had a, uh, a following company fairly large. Um, I think he had it up to about almost 200 followers that worked underneath him. And then, uh, he pivoted into uh, retail. So he had an industrial supply store. So I grew up young working in the uh, industrial supply store. So I kind of had that exposure to, uh, entrepreneurship um and then from there my first uh, venture was i used to do dances for teenagers up in Terrace, so i'd sell tickets and rent a hall hire a dj um and then i did all that through throughout my senior years in high school helped pay for a trip uh, a karate trip i took in japan and lived there for six months learning karate so yeah i've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial uh, spirit in me um and then from there i went to college uh Camosun college um ended up working a little bit for canadian springs water company uh, and then i that's when i got into importing so at cmosin i took a international business uh diploma um and then i started importing bottled water coolers from uh, first from korea and then eventually from china and then we took that business retail so we sold to home depot walmart costco things like that. And i sold that business in 2005. Um, and by that time we'd already opened Zambri's. So I met my partner, uh, Josephine Zambri at Canadian Springs. We ended up getting married. Her brother was a, a chef, very, very skilled chef. Um, and we decided to open Zambri's. That was my first foray into the restaurant business. Um, and we're still partners. Joe and I aren't married anymore, but we're still business partners and they're partners with me and Big Will as well um the venture in grand prairie alberta was started from my brother who um is a few years younger than myself and he moved from kamloops to grand prairie to you know seek his fortune in the oil patch and uh he got a lot of experience in oil service pressure testing um so he wanted to go out on his own and for me it's you know i'm a bit of an environmentalist so i it was a bit of a a, you know off the beaten path for myself but i was really encouraged by his entrepreneurship um it's also pressure testing is a uh is a way to prevent emission leaks through the oil and gas um, discovery um business so um there is a bit of an environmental thing and i got i got my eyes wide open on on that whole industry up there so i i'm a small minority partner but a business advisor for him and uh, he runs the day-to-day business, and I'm very proud. We've been doing that about ten years. Just had a wind wind spell here.
0: I know. It's um,
1: so uh, that, uh, yeah, so that's that's how I got involved with with them. And we opened that business in 2013, and it's been a fair fairly big challenge as well over the last couple of years, in particular right before COVID, the oil prices crashed, and yeah, so it's it's uses a different side of my brain.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. And it's just a yeah, it's a really cool mix. And I'd imagine that it Yeah, like you said, it it just challenges you in different ways. Um, and I want to jump back a little bit into your you grew up in an entrepreneurial family was there? Um, was your dad sort of proactive about keeping you involved in how decisions were made? Like, did you kind of was it sort of like a, a dinner table discussion regularly? Like, was there something that as you grew up that kind of influenced you like oh, this is something I want to be my own boss type thing?
1: Yeah, I think I've always had it in my DNA. I think it's more of a DNA thing than a learned experience. Uh, My dad, you know, uh, was a bit of an old school father, worked a lot. He felt kids should be seen but not heard. So there wasn't a ton of um, dialogue that way. Um, I think as I got into business, um, him and I would, would talk a lot about business and entrepreneurship Um, he was a bit of a risk taker. um, And I think he probably was a little bit too risky. So um, I think he's taught me, you know, a little bit about uh, capital preservation and, you know, measured risk. So I think there's definitely things that I learned from him, but I think it's more about just the spirit of entrepreneurship. He was always looking, you know, at the next best idea, and willing to take you know risks to try to get there and get some independence for him, and he was very successful um, throughout a good part of his career. And uh, I think that sort of inspired me to what was possible. And I think that's kind of the you know a good message as a as a youngster um, is just shooting for you know big goals and shooting for the stars and and don't accept no.
0: Um, and yeah, so I, I think I definitely learned that from him. Okay, no, that's great. Um- Throughout your career, I mean, you've, you've mentioned a number of stops there. Are there a couple of key highlights um, that stick out to you? Maybe if you've got two, could you know, something along the lines of the first, you know, when you launched Sambree's or Big Wheel or just something that things that maybe were plateaus that you broke through or something like that.
1: Yeah, I think there's a, a few instances. Um, when I had my import business, uh, that was a big learning curve, um, basically on cash flow. Uh, when we imported products from Asia, we had to pay cash for them uh, by wire transfer, and sometimes it would be two or three months before the product would arrive, and selling to Home Depot and these big box stores would take two or three months to get paid. So I think that was an eye-opener for me, is just understanding, you know, the flow of money and um, how that that works. Um, in the restaurant business, obviously... It, it served me well because, you know, preserving cash and using your cash wisely is is a very important thing in the restaurant business. Uh, traditionally, you're operating on two to three, sometimes if you're lucky, 5% margin. So it's super tight. So if you, if you make a mistake, you get punished fairly quickly and you're usually short of cash. So uh, I think that experience, you know, put me in a good position um, in the restaurant um, business. The other thing is just finding good partners. So um, I've been fortunate enough to have, uh, you know, two really good partners throughout my my last 20-year career in the restaurant business, being uh, Joe Ambry and Peter Zambry. Um And they do a lot of the day-to-day heavy lifting. Um, I deal with most of the business things. So it's a really good partnership. And I think that's one of the things is if you can't, if you don't have the skill set yourself, find the skill set, either through a partnership or um, just good hiring practices. Um, I think those those two factors are sort of the, the most critical things that have uh, led to our success.
0: Okay, no, that's great. I really appreciate you flushing that out. I want to jump into the the pandemic stuff a little bit here. Um, just mainly because you're you're within the restaurant business. It's one of the harder hit um, sectors that's there. Can you walk me through a little bit of just what your initial reaction is, especially as we're kind of hopefully starting to come out to, on the other side here.
1: Yeah, the initial reaction was um, terror, I guess. Um, I also had an interest in the oil service business and the oil market just collapsed a couple months prior to that. Um, I think that that um, awareness of global affairs, which is an important aspect of that business, um, had me personally better prepared. I saw what was going on in China early, um, was watching it closely as it, pivoted to Italy and started growing so I was anticipating it coming here Uh, most of my you know people that work for me and uh, my partners uh, were a little even my my girlfriend we had a trip planned to Ireland and I was telling her that we're gonna have to cancel it she was looking at me like I was crazy but so I was a little bit uh, prepared Um, the hardest challenge for me was just getting everybody I felt like I was probably a month ahead of ahead of it um, and people were reeling from you know the, the initial shutdown and a little bit par- paralyzed. So I think that's the one advantage that we had is I kind of was a little bit better prepared. So you know one of the things when you're doing that, and I felt like I was in a position um, to sort of understand what we needed to do, but I needed to rally the troops and get everybody on the same page which was, I think our single, you know, most impactful thing that we did is, you know, it took us about three to three to five days to get everybody on the same page on what our action plan is going to be. And then just, I knew that we needed to move quickly um, in order to pivot and do what we need to do. Otherwise, you know, the longer it takes, the, the harder and the, the, the slower it's going to be to, to kind of get things back together. Um, we had done a lot of stuff prior to the pandemic that put us in good position. We already had a takeout app that had already been going. Um, I had thought about different things that we could do if this was going to happen. So um, we kind of had a plan, a little bit of a, uh, you know, a foundation of a plan in place prior. So I think that that helped us. And, a, a, you know, a good business model, too. I mean, we do pivot well to takeout at Big Will Burger. Um, Zambri's, of course, a full service uh, in-room dining. Um, it's been more the classic experience in the restaurant business, but fortunately, Big Wheel Burgers, you know, kind of bolstered the the sales and and we learned a lot of stuff and transferred it to average as well. Just um, with some of the computer systems and you know takeout and deliveries and things like that. So, okay. uh, I feel yeah. like we were in better position than most.
0: Yeah, no, that is really cool to hear, especially that I would the takeout app was certainly very fortuitous to have that set up. Um, and it answers a a couple of other questions there. Was there a surprise that came out of this for you with maybe a response from your team or response from customers?
1: Um, Well, I think the team in general, like uh, I did an interview on check early in the pandemic and I, at the time, and I think it still rings true is just knowing that your team's got your back. Um, as a leader in an organization, a lot of times it's a little bit lonely. Um, and me in particular, I try to do the big things. So a lot of times you're, you're, you know, the rest of your team's on the other side of the table, looking at you like you're crazy. Um, so I think some of the stuff, especially with our foundation. So we had a foundation that we'd started a couple of years prior, and I was always wanting to elevate that and make it more a part of what we do um and giving back to the community and I think that was you know another aspect so my staff being there for me and being you know willing to do what it took to get everything back up and running and then our ability to elevate our foundation and just you know do a partnership with our, our staff or the ownership group our suppliers and the community so that we can just be there for them I think when disaster strikes that's you know raising everybody up um is is kind of how you get through it and i think that is you know with the be- biggest lesson and one of the most important things that happened for me yeah
0: okay. no that is great i saw uh, quite a few notes about the foundation online as i was prepping for this so it is it is cool to see that there's some good traction there um i want to ask a, a question too about as you've built these businesses um and certainly i mean i read one note that there's roughly about 120 ish staff with big wheel can you talk about? what your approach was like from kind of from that jump and how you worked on scaling the company up from, from the beginning, you don't have to get obviously too, too granular, but.
1: Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing about it is just having good people. Um, When we built the business plan for big wheel burger, we always wanted it to be a little bit arm's length where it wasn't just about ourselves. It was about, you know, a strong store manager, a strong store team, and having the customers and the staff, you know, look to the store manager as as the beacon um, and strength. So all of the systems we put in place were designed to be arm's length so that, you know, we didn't have to be, you know, the ones that were called in the middle of the night if something happened or um, we just built a really good foundation. We made sure all the systems were in place. Um, We purchased correctly. Um, We empowered the team there to make some decisions. And that's allowed us to um, to grow. Uh, there's been a ton of you know learning curves. I think we're fortunate that the customers haven't seen a lot of those things. A lot of most of the worst mistakes happened behind the scenes, um, and it came at a you know cost, uh, investment costs and price costs, and you know you know lots of sleepless nights and just trying to figure out. But we always did it based on systems, so. Um, most of our mistakes were trial and error with different systems that, that didn't work, that we thought might work. Um, but you know, and we're fairly quick and I think that's one of the biggest advantages that we have is that we move quickly. So we don't, you know, sit in our mistakes very long. Um, and again, just surround ourselves with good people, I think is, is the big message there. And, um, yeah, and you know, systems, 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 and you know, we've, we really invested well in systems and surround ourselves with good people and you know good things will happen and uh i think you know i i'd like to take all the credit for it but i can't and uh i'm just one piece in the puzzle but you know everybody is uh everybody contributes to the success
0: okay no that's great it's and it's really nice to see a great return on it as you guys have grown um i remember i think you guys won a business excellence award a number of years ago you have the NAMO expansion, which is really nice, selfishly, as our head office is down there. Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so that is great. Um, is there a leadership lesson, a singular leadership lesson that you'd pass on to others? You've mentioned investing in people. I don't know if that's kind of, it's a common theme in, in some of the things you're saying, but something that's just stuck out to you as you've as you've grown your businesses.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, leading with heart um, and showing compassion is, is a key element um and i think that ties into the bigger point um, of my success is just sharing the bigger vision with with people um not just your customers understanding what you're doing but your staff so a lot of the times if you hold on to that information you know your staff and the people that you need to move your business forward doesn't understand some of the things you're doing or why um and you know they're not you know their dna isn't linked in with your your, your business philosophy so i think that's the one lesson i learned early is is make sure that you share your vision with everybody that's involved because ultimately you're either that or you're going to be the only one that has that knowledge and you're going to have to do majority of the work yourself so you can't scale a business if you're doing all the work um and the most important advice i can say it's a term that i learned early in my management career where you know don't sweep the warehouse so i had a manager that came in and swept my warehouse and I was the manager of the warehouse and I said to him, he was my boss, but I said, why you might as well fire me if you're going to be in here sweeping my warehouse. So make sure that you, you know, do, you know, have people to do the roles and let them do it. And that again is just, you know, everybody wants to have some ownership and uh, pride in their work. So, you know, I let people hire people well and let them do their job and, you know, just support them rather than, um, you know, be on them all the time. So and share the vision.
0: I love it. Thank you for, for, for sharing that. Um, going forward here as the reopening phases start happening, I think next week, do you have any expectations or what are your expectations from a consumer behavior perspective, especially kind of with you, you being right there on the, the retail front?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'm expecting the roaring twenties. So I believe um, especially when the borders open we'll have an influx of tourists in particular from the united states and i imagine from abroad um so i think that'll be a big uh, impact on what's going on here um i think there'll be a you know more widespread domestic tourism which will bolster that and i think just generally speaking a bunch of people just getting back out and you know familiar you know building up those family bonds and friendship bonds again over food and beverage i mean there's no better way to connect than um, eating and drinking so uh, I'm expecting it to be very busy um, and I think we're gearing towards that aspect and we've made some changes over the course of COVID that has put us in a better position um, and we got to face that business is not good, is business needs to change um, I think employees need to be paid more we're working towards a living wage program for our staff which is a little unprecedented in a quick service restaurant like ourselves but Um, I think we're smart enough to figure it out. Um, and so we're going to be implementing that over the next little while. And I think investing in the people and investing in the community will, um, the companies that do that will greatly succeed and and have an advantage. So that's where we're putting our emphasis and, um, hopefully in the next two to three years, you know, you can, it's a proud job to be working in a restaurant and well-paying, so I don't see why, you know, we need to be reliant on, on gratuities or things like that, because we should be able to pay a living wage and run a business that way. So that's, you know, I'm going to try to do that. And I'm not alone because we started a, a bread and butter collective, which is a group of um, restaurants. And we're basically just sharing information, helping each other out and just, you know, trying to prevent mistakes and also encourage um, people to pay pay better, but also do a business model that they can profit as well so that they're not you know, either losing money or breaking even, they can actually make a little bit of profit so that we're prepared for the next, you know, big event that happens that could disrupt the business.
0: Yeah. Is the Bread and Butter Foundation, is that like brand new that you guys have found? Uh, have founded? Yeah.
1: Like, the- yeah, we've started the, we founded the society, I guess it was probably about six months ago now, um, where it was official. We started working together uh, last summer and we just called a group of you know restaurant tours you know there's a, a number of them bread and butter is our is our website um and you can see all the members there i think we're at about 35 or 36 now um but you know you know habit coffee sherwood um two percent jazz prima strada pizzeria um a, you know tap bar there's a bunch of local um, restaurants here and we've attracted other ones in other cities as well just with a common idea of, you know, we're just sharing business planning and, and um, best practices on pricing. And, you know, we're trying to figure out a living wage program that can work and, you know, try to get people off the idea that um, tipping is the only way that you can make a living in the restaurant business, because it's a little bit of servitude when that's how you have to make money is off, you know, people's um, generosity and tipping and, I don't think that's a great business model. Um, Unfortunately, it's been the one that we've had to deal with for the last, you know, 100 years, but we're looking to make a little bit of a change, at least in our backyard. So yeah, it's been fun. It's been really rewarding. And, you know, you think you're the smart guy at the table, but there's so many other people that are doing really interesting things that uh, sharing that knowledge is what we have to do in order to strengthen our industry.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's really encouraging to hear. It's nice to hear the the collaboration that's going on. You mentioned briefly the living wage. Um, and some of the changes that you guys have enacted going through forward in the next couple of months. Are you just kind of just kind of waiting to figure out what's going to happen from a, a, a I guess a business perspective as the reopening happens? Is there any kind of changes or announcements that you have coming up?
1: Well, we're going to be, the living wage program is something that we're going to do. Hopefully we'll have that in place um, by October. Um, We we usually, I mean, in the old days, we used to do things fairly quickly. And I think there's certain things that just need a little bit more time to prepare. So we're going to have that in place. Obviously, we're going to continue to do our foundation work. Um, We just got a charity status with, with um, the Big Will Community Foundation. So there'll be tax uh, benefits to people that um, donate there. Um, we're gonna be, we have an auto gratuity right now on all of our bills just to give wage support. Our staff um, agreed to donate 20% of that to our foundation, which we matched. So that's how our foundation has been being funded. So, you know, that's a very good community initiative where um, we're asking our customers to participate, our staff participates, we participate, and then we ask our suppliers to donate as well. So moving forward, we'll just go back to the traditional tipping model, but we will add a 1.5% foundation, Um, but we'll have our, our charity number on the receipts so they can claim that as a tax deduction as well. Um, and it's really I, one of the things that I really think is important is that we're all in it together. Um, we've gotten some pushback with the auto gratuity, um, people pointing out that, you know, it's a takeout business. And by the point of the, of the initiative is to have everybody working together. So we're not asking anybody to do anything that we're not doing ourselves. And, you know, people have choices out there. So if they don't su- want to support us for, for doing this, then you know, there's a lot of other good places that serve good food, but this is how we want, you know, to change business for ourselves. And um it's again, we're not asking anybody to do anything that we're not prepared to do ourselves. So I think that's kind of key. Um and then we're opening Courtney. Um we're we're we've got land in Courtney. We've we're close to finishing the plans and submitting our building permit. And hopefully we'll be open there with our own building next summer. That's, that's really tremendous. exciting for us.
0: Yeah, when I was looking through your locations last night, I thought, oh, it just seems like a natural progression to hit the Comox Valley. You have a fairly young family demographic. So I think that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, we've been wanting to do that for a long time. And we've actually owned the land there for, I think, going on three years now. So it's something that we've um, been wanting to work on. And we were in position to do it last summer, but uh, COVID obviously got in the way of that. And opening one restaurant during COVID is enough. We don't need to open any more than that.
0: awesome well that's cool i look forward to to seeing how that turns out um i want to ask you quickly about uh poker and it was not something mm. that i expected to find when i was doing some some research it's, <laughs> it's a really cool uh i don't know i don't know if you call it a hobby or I guess a profession you've had some fairly significant success i get on the on the global stage can you talk about maybe just how that's come about um or is it something you're still kind of active in doing on the side yeah.
1: I mean, I'm, it's a hobby for me at this point. Uh, I did it full time for a number of years. Um, you know, in the early stages of Zambries um, where I wasn't needed as much. So yeah, it's some, I've always been a games person. Um, I had a, uh, an injury. Um, I went in for a knee operation and overdosed on morphine in 1992. So part of that recovery, I was in a coma for five days and I had to relearn how to walk. And there's a, yeah, that's another whole story. But how I got into poker was as a result of rehab. From from that, I started playing chess. So I wanted to rework the pathways in my brain and and um, I felt chess would be a good way to do that. So I played a ton of chess, which then led me to online poker. Um, and, you know, the whole spirit of the game and learning about the game was was pretty challenging for me, um, and I had a little bit of time while I was recovering to do that. So, it, you know, it's the old adage: if you put ten thousand hours into something, you'll become an expert. So, just gradually, I got better at it and became more competitive. Um, would spend a bunch of time in Vegas and um, eventually culminating in a World Series of Poker bracelet in twenty thirteen. Um, and in 2014, I almost won the same tournament twice. So there, those are my claims, claim to fame uh, in that uh, era. But it's been so impactful in my business and, you know, there's things that have transferred both ways. So um, for me, I view it as a, you know, people view it as a gambling and it is gambling, but um, I do tournament poker primarily. And, you know, so you, your cap, your losses are capped. And you play down to a single winner, so it's more of a you know a sporting type of thing for me. But um, risk management has come in that, and there's so many different you know decision-making um, processes that you do that's helped me. And you know, some sometimes it it it's good because I I get to make decisions with limited information, and that's what poker is based on. So I uh, I think being comfortable in that spot has helped. Um, and also just understanding risk and, um, uh, you know, being able to analyze risk correctly is key to success in business for sure.
0: Yeah, no, it's so interesting. I know I've, I've, uh, I've read a little a bit about it and a lot of this, you see, there's some different styles that people play and there's like the heavy analytics side versus a little bit more like an old school go with your gut. Do you yeah, have yeah. a certain, is there a style that do you have a blend of the two or do you have what end of that spectrum I, do you start to fall on?
1: Yeah, I'm, I, I'm kind of a math guy. So, you know, and those are the different you've got the field players, then you've got your, your math players. So basically I analyze the odds fairly well. Um, but I think my bigger advantage is just my people reading skills and then just how I carry myself at the table. Um you know, there's a, a ability to tell a story. So in poker, you have to be able to tell a story with how you're betting. Um, and that story has to make sense. So I think in business, it's the same way. If you're trying to convince somebody to buy your product, you have to tell a story and it's got to be convincing. So there's a lot of parallels with that. Um, and then when it comes to the math of it, I balance those decision-making ability and game theory um, with the instincts of um, where I think I am in a hand. Um, and just a, an ability to tell a story. And um, I think the more convincing you are, uh, the less reliant you need to be on the math part. Um, the, but on the other side, the less convincing you are, the more reliant you need to be just on the stats and the statistics and of that. But, you know, I really enjoy um, the thought process that goes into um, each hand that you play in poker because you're listening to the story they're telling you and then you're looking at the cards and you know what cards you have and you're doing the math on eliminating, you know, based on how they're betting. So it's, it's fun to see if you're right. And a lot of the times you can guess what hands they've got and, or a range of hands. And I think in business, you need to look, you know, there's always a range of possibilities um, and then just trying to figure out you know, the best way to maximize your success within the range of the possibilities that can come. Um, but the single most important thing I learned in poker was not to be results orientated, you know, make the best decisions you can make. And as, as the board changes, you know, your decisions are going to have to change. So when the landscape kind of pivots and turns, if you're, if you're still stuck in your your ways, you're going to be making more mistakes. But if you don't worry about who's going to win or who's going to lose the hand, but just make good decisions at the time, then you're going to be way better off. And I think that, you know, often in life, you get caught up with the result and you just want the result and you want to win and you, you want to have the result that you want. But, you know, a lot of the times if you're focused on the end, you miss all the key parts that go into getting there. So just making good decisions each time um, and evaluating those decisions individually without worrying about the outcome is um, probably some of the best advice that I've learned from playing poker. Um, and then just when you take those big, bad beats and you lose, you know, there's, in 2014, I was playing for 300,000 US, and the difference between you know fourth, which I came in, and and first was 120,000. So you're making decisions based on 120,000. And when you lose, you cry. Like it took me six months to recover from it. But you're that's what happens, and it's the luck of the cards. You I can't control the outcome. All I can do is try to control the decisions I'm making. So. I think that uh, it's some of the best lessons I've learned from poker and I still enjoy it. I'm hoping to go back and play the world series this year. And, you know, I don't do it a ton, but I, I, I dabble online to keep my game fresh and it's uh, a good way for me to relax.
0: Yeah. That is so cool. I really appreciate you flushing that out. No yeah. pun intended. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can, can you, can you, Or I don't know if you're comfortable saying what happened with your knee just out of curiosity was that,
1: I used to do competitive. I mentioned that I was in Japan um, when I was younger, just before I went to college. I came down here to go to college, but I went to Japan with a buddy of mine to train karate at our, our home dojo in Japan. Um, so we did that in, uh, I guess I went there in 1990, 1990. Um, and uh, so I, I've, I've done fairly high level karate competitions and I tore my knee ligaments in uh i guess it was uh 1994 and i went in for an operation um that fall and uh because i tore my acl and uh, that's that's basically how i got the operation and then the operate operation went fine but in the recovery ward um i overdosed on morphine yeah. so yeah that's kind of how how that all started but it's uh <laughs> It'll get you. you know. Yeah. Now I got arthritis in my knee and I'm no. 50. And I'm like, man, my glory days are behind me.
0: Oh man. I'm sorry. Well, you know what? You're still with <laughs> us. You're still with yes. us. And we've got burgers to, uh, just exactly, to remember exactly. you by. Um, exactly. I've got four quick ones to finish up here. Yeah. Uh, favorite book or podcast that you're reading or listening to?
1: Uh, Rutger Bergman wrote a book called Humankind. Um, and that was something that really brought things into perspective for me, especially in the last few years, which is seeing the change politically in the world and, you know, kind of a rise of fascism and this idea that humans are are bad, um, or inherently evil. And that book really puts that to rest. And, uh, he's also got some really interesting ideas, um, or, or sort of like realizations about, um, you know, fear mongering around different global events and including climate change and things like this so it's um it's really good to read something you know that kind of brings you down and puts things into perspective there's a lot of things that are going on in the world that are crazy but i think if you look at the stats of of the facts they you know tell a different story but that story doesn't you know buy votes or sell tickets or you know create likes or all that stuff so yeah, that was a really you know probably one of the better books I've read. And I made a point of last year of reading as many books as I could, and I think I read twenty um, of a variety of different topics. So there's a, there's a bunch of really good
0: ones in there as well. Awesome. Well, I've taken that note down. Uh, best personal advice you received, and it could be okay if you went with it. Don't sweep the warehouse as well.
1: Yeah, I mean that that capital preservation actually is is something. It takes a long time to build capital. Um, And a very short time to lose it. So I think understanding um, risk um, and what you're trying to do and poker brings a good analogy, like you're trying to build chips in a poker tournament. So the idea is you're going to collect all the chips of the tournament. So when you have a big stack, you can take a bunch of risk with the top part of your stack. But don't take a ton of risk with all of it. Because it took, you know, you got to get a little bit lucky, you got to play well, a lot of things have to go right, build, build wealth. So, you know, I welcome full-on risk and, and gamble, if you will, and taking chances on the top part of your stack. But keep your capital, you know, with you because it it, it took a long time to build it and you had to get lucky. So um, try not to just to give it away.
0: Yeah, that's great app or piece of software that you can't live without.
1: I got to say Twitter, to be honest. Like, it's as much as people view some of it as toxic, I've, I've stopped using Facebook altogether. Uh, I mean, there's some business apps that, that I use that are decent, but I think access to, um, relatively real information fairly quickly. There isn't, it's not like Facebook. There isn't the targeting that happens, um, where you're basically going to be in a silo. Uh, you really get to follow and, and learn and, and just see real things that are happening in the moment. So I'm, yeah. And you know I've had very good exchanges with with people that I never would have had had I not been on Twitter. So, Twitter is my
0: my go to. Okay, tremendous. Last one for you. Favorite restaurant on Vancouver Island, even though you own
1: well, two. this is <laughs> this is funny because my actual favorite restaurant is Danbury's. but I'm going. i I have another one because my my. Favorite one that I'm not eating at Zambri's or eating at Big Will or whatever. And that seems so cliche. But I'm going to tell you why Zambri's is my favorite. Because I, one, I have, you know, business influence there, but I don't have a lot of influence on the, on the service or the food or things like that. So um, I just enjoy the, the art of how they, they, they perform their product. They, they care about their food. Um, the servers are very knowledgeable about wine. They understand food, they take the time to train people well so that the customer's experience is um, is really just about the experience of the dining and that, and they get to have their their bonds with their with their friends and their family versus, you know, being there and feeling like you have to always ask questions with the server. But if, if they, if you ask a question, they don't really know the answer, Are the servers there know the answer. So I appreciate that. And then Brasserie LaCole. Which again, a lot of the same, same attributes is, you know, professional serving staff, um, professional kitchen staff, pride in what they do, um, longevity. They've been around a long time. The food is amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, they've, you know, these institutions are, are kind of the fabric of communities. So, you know, that's the main reason why we started Bread and Butter Collective is to make sure that we can strengthen our industry um so you know 10 years from now we aren't just you know uh, you know big box chains and you know we have family-run businesses and and you know people can feel proud about working in the industry so that's kind of where what drives me now um but yeah so brasserie look cool
0: okay hey, i'll put i'll get them both in there awesome man well that's uh, that's all i've got for you uh anything i did not ask you that you wanted to cover
1: No, I think, you know, the big thing for me is just um, make sure you get out and support uh, local businesses, whether it be restaurants, that's great, but any local small business will need some support and help and be patient. I mean, hopefully, you know, we get back to normal in the fall and, you know, businesses will be busy and there's going to be supply chain issues. So just try to have some patience and um, talk to the owners before you blast them online. Um, A lot could be done. I mean, I get every complaint that comes from from Big Wilburger or Zambries comes to my phone. So um, we do respond to them uh, and they make a difference. So, um, you know, I would rather you just reach out to us directly versus blasting us online. So um, only because there is going to be some supply chain problems and, and people will not be ready for some of the growth that they see. So just be patient with
0: us. Thanks for stopping by From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. If you want to learn more about the interviewee, please check the web and social links provided in the video or listening platform description. Please send any feedback to info@businessexaminer.ca with the subject line podcast. We'll see you next week.